0: This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us too on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. So let's get to it because a lot of virus headlines once again to go over. And that includes, we've got Pfizer and BioNTech uh, raising their uh, production target for the vaccine to about 2 billion shots. Their previous production was 1.3 billion. Uh, You have New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio reaffirming his goal of doling out a million COVID-19 doses by the end of January. Does that feel like a lot to you?
1: Um, it does feel like a lot to me. It yeah, does feel for, like the pace is picking city. up, right? Yeah, yeah. By the end of January, if you think about it, we know, you know, this is a city of nine million people. So it's not right? too bad. Do no, the math, bad, right? Percentage wise. Yeah.
0: And then LA, the epicenter of the latest U.S. wave, uh, turning Dodger Stadium into a mass vaccination center to inoculate as many as twelve thousand people a day.
1: Um, so it's eighty-four I mean, a week. Yeah. LA is so bad right now, Carol.
0: Have you, have you talked to your family?
1: Yeah. I mean, my brother's not even there. He moved in with my parents. He, uh, so, yeah, yeah, three months ago.
0: All right, so let's get our daily check on the virus. Dr. William Yates is back with us, founder and owner of Yates Enterprises. It's a company that provides security solutions to schools and other places like metal detectors to detect guns, temperature detection devices, something that certainly comes into play during uh, the pandemic. He is a trauma surgeon who grew up on the south side of Chicago and he is once again with us on the phone in Chicago. Dr. Yates, nice to have you back with me and Tim. How are you and how's it going in Chicago?
2: Oh, Thanks, Carol and Tim. Uh, everything's about the same, uh, kind of the same gloom and doom, even mm. though, you know, everybody's gearing up with the virus, but the numbers are going up, the deaths are going up, and I just saw in the United States now the deaths from COVID are over, you know, 300,000, which is bigger than a city like, you know, football guys know Green Bay here, so it's bigger than Green Bay and mm. bigger than Birmingham, Alabama, so... We have a real problem. And then the other problem is this new variant, which we're seeing out of the UK and South Africa, is something else that really hasn't been dealt with yet.
0: What do you mean it hasn't been dealt with yet? What does that mean? Well,
2: just as we really don't know a lot about what are the end results, say, of the, the, uh, the virus and getting the virus... What happens to you when you get sick and then you get cured? Do you still have symptoms? Right now, as far as this new virus, number one, we're kind of sure that the vaccine works for this virus. But what we're not sure is we know it's more infectious, meaning that it has the ability to spread faster and easier. But we don't know the clinical sequelae, meaning if you get this virus, what will happen to you in the long run, even if you are you know, cured or feel better. We don't know the end results of this.
1: Are we starting to see... That's what I meant. Are we starting to see any sort of research into that, any results of early people who got this? I mean, we've heard about these COVID long haulers who continue to have persistent problems, uh, and it's terrifying, I think, for a lot of people.
2: Right. I mean, the COVID long haulers, interestingly, you bring this up, it seems to be more prevalent in the younger population, where the, the population which takes the most risk And uh, lives with the most wanton abandonment, abandonment seem to have more symptoms on the back end than the front end. I saw a study where 20 to 30 percent of young people who had COVID and got over it, say six to eight months later, were having terrible problems like breathing, arrhythmias, and things like that. So it's kind of this is kind of a, the young people should be afraid of COVID and take it seriously, even though they, they aren't getting that sick. Now, as far as the new variant, it's just too too early to know what's going to happen. Is it going to be a long hauler? And what we don't even know the short term of this one. But what we do know is that some of the vaccines appear to be promising. The one in Europe is the one we're not using. It's called AstraZeneca. I believe they've tested that against this new strain in Europe, and it did work.
0: Yeah, so that's a good – I mean, and my understanding is that you can take an existing, the existing COVID vaccine and adapt it to variants. It does take a little bit of time. Is that fair? Is that accurate?
2: That, that is accurate. Um, usually the vaccines is sometimes have to be tweaked. Okay. to make right. them applicable for the new strains. Like the flu vaccine every year that we get, some of those are tweaked to uh, make way for how the vaccine has mutated. So it's unclear if these vaccines are being tweaked and it fights the irregular form or they're just taking the, the form that's out right now.
1: I'm, I'm wondering what you would do, you know, here we are nine days out from a new administration, if you were advising the president to hit the ground running on January 20th, what is the best way to get this under control?
2: Well, I think the best would see, the breakdown, if you watch TV all the time and you see the guys from the military and it looks very official and they're saying we have 20 million, 20 million viruses and then you see the FedEx planes landing and so forth and so on, the virus is leaving the factory. That's not the problem. Right, the, v- problem, the vaccine, right? The exact vaccine I'm talking about. The problem is at the state level, then things become a little haywire. So to answer your question, I would make it very seamless at the state level what happens to the vaccine. If each state gets one million, this first million goes here and it goes today, you know, and somebody is put ahead of that. All the states do the same thing and follow the same plan instead of coming up with individual recipes for their success, because that's where the breakdown is right now. It's not the right. government. The government's done pretty well. It's the states that are having the problem with administering the vaccine.
0: Right. You could probably use an assist from the government at this point.
1: Yeah, it's a tough thing to do when we live in the United States, though, right? We, yep. we don't have this. It's it's federalism, right? States', mm-hmm. states right. rights. So it's, it's, not,
0: it's
2: easier said than done.
0: Yeah. No oh, doubt. no
2: question. I mean, I'm answering as a scientist, but... Right. The reason the reason that people live in the United States is for that reason, because we do have an abundance of rights and it's not, you know, a dictatorship or a fascist type of state.
1: Dr. Yates, I I know your group at Yates Enterprises, um, at Yates Protect, uh, works a lot with thermometers and thermal imaging and thermal scanning. One thing that we've learned, though, throughout the pandemic has been that having a higher than usual temperature isn't necessarily the only indicator that you could potentially be carrying COVID. What have we learned?
2: Well, I guess what we have learned, the converse to that is that having a higher than normal temperature puts you in the realm possibly of having COVID. We know that 40% of the people who have COVID and are infective, 40% won't have any symptoms at all. But what we do know, the people who are symptomatic, almost 80% of those people will have a temperature, as defined by the CDC, above 100 degree point four Fahrenheit. It's almost consistent. If you look at every study and, and type in symptomatic COVID, you will find fever is number one, up to some studies show as low as 80, some show as high as 96. So I, th- I think it is worthwhile, and I think it's going to be standard of care in the world, because what it's proved to us, Having a fever every day is not normal. You can't fake a fever. To get a fever, your hypothalamus in your brain has to be activated. And even if you don't have COVID, you shouldn't be at work with the fever. Right. That's the main thing we've well, learned.
1: What, what happens to this technology if you know somebody walks in from outside and they've been in below freezing temperatures for 10 minutes walking uh, from their home to work or on their commute? And they walk in and they get scanned and the surface of their skin is, is colder than usual.
2: That's a good question. So that... We get asked that all the time, and so we ask people to have a separate area for kind of an equilibrium process where not a lot of people are. All it'll take is from about 10 minutes for that person to return to what we call an equilibrium state, and then we check them. But on some of the machines, we can raise the threshold and get what temperature they were at, and it'll make the calculation for Mm. us. But it takes, you know, some doing. So to make it easy, we have them have a place where the person can stay for about 10 minutes and then we check them.
0: So a lot of the temperature scanners that companies have, are they kind of a joke?
2: Well, I'm in the business. I'm going to say mine aren't a joke. (laughs) um,
0: Well, okay. No, that's fine. uh, But you know what I'm saying?
2: You know, I I get you. I'm going to answer. I I think a lot are joke because a lot of people use them incorrectly. And when I go into restaurants or different places, they kind of go through the motions and they never look at the number. I know that for a fact because I just walk in and I just give them any part of my body and they just if I give them my knee, they'll scan my knee, you know, so. You have to be very diligent about where you scan, because those are measuring body surface temperature, not body core temperature, right. and you should do it, the best place to do it is the forehead, or on the side of the forehead, mm. where something called the temporal artery is beating under there. Those are the best places. The wrist, everybody's hand is the coldest thing on their body. That's why we wear gloves. So when you start shooting at the wrist, and everybody's going to pass. So... I hope that answers the question, but the technology is good, but it's only as good as the operator.
0: I think that we get shot in our forehead, don't we? We get full body, I think. We get full body. We get full body. (laughs) Um, Hey, Dr. Yates, just got about 30, 40 seconds here. I don't know. So in terms of getting back to normal, how do you see it, just quickly?
2: As quick as I can say it, uh, about two years. It's going to take that long, probably, with the vaccine and to get herd immunity. And then by then, there's going to be some other pathogens that we need to worry about. So it'll never look the same, but it'll be closer. Come on. I mean, you've heard about the one in South Africa. We didn't even talk about that. We talked about the one in the U.K. There's another variant in South Africa that's a little sticky as far as, you know, being able to, you know, fall into being killed by the vaccine.
0: Happy Monday, everybody. Yeah, I
1: was going to say Happy New Year, Dr. Yates.
0: <laughs> All right, Dr. Yates, thank you so much. Stay safe, be well. Uh, Dr. William Yates, founder and owner of Yates Enterprises, uh, on the phone from Chicago. Well, that's the new reality, though. We've got to be aware that there's going to be, you know, that's why there's virus hunters out there.
1: Yeah, I think we have to just adjust our expectations. That's the key to not getting too disappointed. I think so, too. This is
0: Bloomberg Business Week. With Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. It's a new day and yet an old reminder of how powerful big tech is. A social media giants Facebook, Twitter, Google, all ban President Trump and others in an effort to prevent further riot organizing. One already fighting back. Um, this is already one of our big stories of 2021. Let's get into it. Uh, reporting for uh, Businessweek, Bloomberg News technology reporter and author of No Filter, the inside story of Instagram, Sarah Fryer with us on the phone in San Francisco, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor, Jill Weber on the access line in Brooklyn. You know, big tech, we knew coming into 2021, it was going to be a story that was on our radar, but I don't know that we thought it was going to be on our radar, Joel, in this way.
3: I was looking forward to 2021. that <laughs> didn't look anything like 2020, but uh, I don't think I'll be so lucky. No. Um, and, and obviously, um, um, last week's chaos actually came to a head even again over the weekend with mm-hmm. sort of the social media platforms, um, basically, basically, you know, not only blocking uh, Trump and, and perhaps permanently banning him in the case of Twitter. But then I think the, the parlor conversation has become the one that's even more interesting because – um both the apple app store and and google's play store has, have taken restrictions there but then i thought the the big move and the one that i was actually most eager to talk to sarah about was sort of the the amazon move aws yeah. coming in and basically blocking it i didn't so see sarah, that coming i mean this <laughs> yeah but it does show you know like not only are the social media companies able to wield a stick but like amazon's got the biggest stick of all so, so Sarah, kind of, there's so, this is just a fast-moving story, but uh, I want to understand like how you're thinking about where this conversation go goes from from here.
4: Well, it dovetails right in with the tech power conversation that we're going to have a lot more this year as these antitrust uh, battles with Washington rage on, um, and it, I expect that to continue during the Biden administration. And that tech power conversation is both about you know, the power to restrict as, as much as it is about the power to allow. Um, and so the companies are grappling with this, allowing Parler to be on the app store, allowing Parler to have um, hosting by Amazon. That's something that employees are looking at, critics are looking at and saying, well, why don't you just cut them off? You have the power to do that. You're a private company. And the companies are, are saying, you know what? Yeah, we don't want to be dealing with this. this. We don't want this headache. And and it's really interesting to see that evolution because we've we've talked about it a lot, like you said, with the social media companies. Uh, it, a lot of conservatives are concerned about too much cutting off of, of people who have accounts. A lot of uh, people on the Democratic side are concerned about the hosting of illegal activity and um, people who are inciting violence. And, and the balance is really what is, what is uh, an issue here.
3: So Sarah, a lot, and you mentioned this, but a lot of the, the heat on the companies actually came from their own employees. So what have we seen in, not only from AWS, but, but um, at Facebook and Apple? What, what sort of internal factions are the companies navigating?
4: Well, Silicon Valley companies have a reputation for being really mission-driven, and I think a lot of employees have had uh, a personal reckoning over the last few years. Is it ethical to work for Facebook? Is it ethical to work for Google if they're working with the Defense Department on, you know, uh, putting people in cages at the border? There have been a lot of of new debates about what it means if you work for a company that has Certain suppliers, certain vendors, certain contracts, and host certain voices. And so we have seen employees be almost the more forceful voice against their leaders and even the government, because the government can't can't really um, be clear about what they want. Everyone's scrutinizing tech power, but they don't necessarily have a clear direction of what would be a good resolution. Whereas employees, you know, they're mostly they're mostly liberal, they're well educated, and they're saying, hey. I don't want to work for a place that supports something like this. And we saw an open letter from Twitter employees to Jack Dorsey asking for a bigger ban on Trump. They had previously only banned him for 12 hours and now that he's permanently banned. And we've seen we've seen Amazon employees write to their employer about Parler, saying why are we hosting Parler? We should we should take them off. And I think that that should not be underestimated because of how hard it is to recruit in Silicon Valley,
0: the best talent. Well, well, and what's to stop, I don't know, like, I don't know whether there's oranges to oranges, apples to apples, but another company from saying, I don't like, well, I guess companies do that, right? If they don't want to work with a supplier or if they don't want to work with something, they have that opportunity to do it, Sarah. I'm just trying to understand the differences or not differences from another company kind of banning, Something, you know, whether they don't sell to a certain customer, um, they do that all the time, right? Well, sometimes so okay, a few years ago, companies
4: were happy to just work within the bounds of the law. There are sanctions against Iran, we won't sell to Iran. that That was like you know, if it's illegal, we won't do it. Um, and that was how Facebook and Twitter thought about content a lot in the early days. you know, remove as little as possible. Now, I think the tech companies are recognizing that they have this tremendous power, and the ability to move more quickly than the government in many cases to to fix it. And they have they also have this great insight into what's happening um, faster than law enforcement officials have. Facebook, of course, is, mm. is going to have to be providing law enforcement with a lot of the images of people who who were in the violent mob last Wednesday. So. So I think that the companies are, are coming, are waking up to their power, but it's also a politically convenient time for them to do so because they're seeing that um, the the power in Washington is shifting to the Democrats, and that party is a lot more um, more in favor of tech companies taking responsibility for the power they have over public conversation.
3: So, so, can we just um, talk a, about Parler specifically for a second here? Because what does a company like that go now? Like, they've ultimately just had the the power plug pulled out on them. Um, already, probably, we're going to face some ire from, from Democrats. I thought, you know, back to Carol's question there for a second. One interesting thing here was not, it wasn't like an arbitrary decision that any of these tech companies used to enforce this. They actually said, well, we have a code, effectively, and, and Parler's... Uh, um, in defiance of that code and and therefore that's what gives us cover to to basically make this decision. And so where does a company like Parlor go from here?
0: And sorry, just got about thirty five, forty seconds just quickly. Well, parlor is using this
4: as a, a marketing opportunity, just like you know Gab, when they were banned, they they said, you know they don't want they don't want to hear us, um, but we're still here. We're still going to survive. I think parlor is going to have to find an audience a different way. It's definitely going to be so difficult for them to survive and grow without access to the app stores. Um, that that makes it a lot less mainstream. You have to actually know yeah. how to get there in other ways.
0: Uh, let's see. Looking into my crystal ball, and yes, we will be talking about this a lot this year. <laughs> no doubt about it. Um, Sarah and Joel, you guys are the best. Sarah Fryer, technology reporter at Bloomberg News. Check out our book, No Filter. Joel Weber, editor at... <laughs> This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Business Week brought to you by SEI. Since its founding 50 years ago, SEI has provided investment managers and asset owners with robust infrastructure platforms and flexible outsourcing solutions. Check it out. Go to seic.com. IMS. So let's get to our next segment because uh, it's about the founding father of the People's Republic of China, controversial for his policies, disastrous really. Uh, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution back in the late 1950s and 1960s. We were talking about Chairman Mao and the reason we're talking about him is because his reign and his methods are not dissimilar to President Trump. It's provocative, it's thoughtful, it's the exact conversation we need to be having right now. The reason we're talking about it is because Bloomberg New Economy editorial Director Andy Brown brought it to our attention. It's in his latest column. Andy is on the phone in New Hampshire. Hey, Andy, nice to have you here. Um, haven't had a chance to talk with you. It's been such a crazy week. How do you kind of think about this last week and President Trump as a leader?
5: Well, you know, the way I've been looking at it is um, through the eyes of Chinese officials in state media. Um, and they're having a field day with this. It plays absolutely into their uh, a dominant narrative, which, at, which is that the United States is in, in permanent decline. Um, starting with the 2008, 2009 financial crisis, which the United States arguably never really fully recovered from. Um, and now this meltdown as they see it, Um, of the American system of democracy, which of course is key to American prestige and power projections, particularly soft power projection around the world. And um, they're looking at this and they're saying, you know, our system has not only produced uh, a far more serious and successful response to COVID-19, which now underpins our economic recovery and the the economy in China is pretty much operating normally now. Uh, But it's also delivered critically stability. And they're comparing and contrasting all this uh, with, frankly, the chaos that we've witnessed in in Washington, D.C.
1: This is all happening against the backdrop of a trade war with Mm -hmm. China relations, not in a very good place i think it's fair to say andy um what is the environment that president-elect biden inherits the relationship that president-elect biden inherits with china in nine days and and what does this do to that
2: well
5: you know actually the, one of the, sort of what we've been seeing over the past couple of days is yet more evidence that the trump administration is trying to box in the biden administration On China, in other words, taking actions against China, um, including sanctions against uh, Chinese companies, um, but also uh, more seriously in the geopolitical space. Um, uh, For instance, just the other day, uh, eliminating all barriers to uh, state to state uh, contacts between the United States and Taiwan. Um, you know, taking a series of actions like this, which will make it very difficult, which the, the Biden administration will find very difficult uh, to roll back, lest they should be accused in the early days uh, after they've taken over of being soft on, on China. Um, so, you know, this, this is a very deliberate strategy of, of the Trump administration. And, fr- and frankly, uh, it, 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 it places the relationship, um, uh, you know, in a, in a very, very brittle um and dangerous position.
0: So, Andy, I want to go back, though, to this comparison with Chairman Mao. I mean, how does it help us maybe understand Trump or understand even more so, you know, kind of what his mission maybe was from the get go?
5: Yeah, look, I'm not I'm not saying and of course, it it wouldn't be serious to suggest that that Trump is Mao in any in any way. Of course. Uh, And yet, you know, there are these incredibly uh, uh, disturbing and uncomfortable uh, parallels, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Mao hated elites. Mao adored chaos. Mao saw conspiracies everywhere, you know, and, and then, of course, the parallel. Uh, with the events last week, is is that Mao himself, when he went, um, uh, uh, you know, he went mad during the last years of his life. He launched an all-out attack on the Chinese government, the the party and the state that he himself um, had created after the revolution. And he ordered his Red Guard followers to, as he put it, or as the People's Daily put it in a famous headline, bombard their headquarters. Uh, and he saw chaos um, in China. Um, uh, and of course, this lasted for a decade. This was the Chinese Cultural Revolution. Um, and one can see haunting echoes of that in, in some of the behaviors and personal attributes um, of Donald Trump.
1: So I, I guess the, the question is, if we're looking at this being a historical parallel, what can be done right now? What can the, the Czechs do? the checks and balances, that is, do in order to prevent that from happening here in the United States over the next few years?
5: Well, the optimistic, um, um, you know, the, the, the optimist will say that the strength of democracy is its ability to self-correct. And you are seeing that um, right now in the events um, that are taking place, um, you know, as, as we speak, the effort to hold Trump accountable. Um, The election has been confirmed. Joe Biden will take office. And yet it has to be said that, you know, the rest of the world aren't just going to look at this as being, you know, the the pre Biden and post Biden uh, eras as though there's a there's a. Uh, you know a, a a clear dividing line between the two yeah. um, the fact is that you know 74 million Americans voted for Trump a hundred and uh, what, what was the number 100 and 130 or 140 Republican uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, congressmen voted for, 147 yeah, 147 total. voted for this this legislation um, it's going to take years for the America for America to rebuild uh, trust and credibility um, mm-hmm. around the world, including most critically uh, with allies.
0: Yeah, it's pretty remarkable uh, all the healing and fixing up and repairing that that will have to be done. Hey, Andy, thank you so much. Uh, Bloomberg New Economy editorial director Andy Brown joining us on his latest column is as we.
5: This is The Drive to the Close. That punk music will drive
1: us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: Ah, yes, indeed. Time for The Drive to the Close. 11 minutes to go uh, to wrap up this Monday, January 11th, 2021. Abe Deshpande is founder and chief investment officer at Centerstone Investors. On the phone in New York City, Abe, nice to have you back with us. Um, we talked with you last, I think it was around early November. A lot has happened since then. Um, how are you doing, and how are you making sense of kind of our world right now?
6: Hey, Carol, good to uh, hear your voice again. Yeah, um, yeah we're, we're doing fine. Centerstone's been, you know, we're value investors, so we've been sort of in that doghouse. That, uh, <laughs> now, but, the um, doghouse gets you know, bigger and bigger, right? You're not alone in there. <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're no, we got plenty of company, um, and it's a good kind of company. I look around, I'm like, oh, these are thoughtful, smart people, um, you know. So it's good company. Um, and then, you know, we're gonna we're starting to see already um, kind of some interesting signs of, of relief from some of the bubble activity that we've we've been uh, witnessing over the last uh, many months here. And uh, I think you know, 2021 is shaping up to be potentially a very interesting year for for people like us. Um, I'll give you an example. You know, we're looking. I was just looking at Zoom uh, Media. That's a hundred billion dollar market cap company, 50 times sales. That's kind of like a typical, uh, you know, ratios that you see in some of these um, hot stocks. And you know, all that's good if it's justified by growth. And Wall Street does project a 50 percent year-on-year growth for 20 for this year coming up. Uh, but the first quarter growth is projected to be up two percent. And I think you're going to see a lot of this. Uh, growth disappointment. It's not hard to disappoint when you're talking about 50 times sales and people are looking at, you know, 50, 60, 70% growth rates. And so um, the market, I would say, it didn't even really get ahead of itself. It's, just, it's, it's, it got, it's a universe ahead of itself. And so this year it could be very, very interesting to watch um, the air being um, let out of these, some of these bubbles. And it, it's coincident with, you know, the world potentially starting to open up again this summer. The quote-unquote the real world, uh, you know, getting back in action, um, and I can I can see already what's probably likely going to happen. Lots of growth scares in some of these uh, mobile names.
1: Okay, so how do you position yourself then to have 2021 be the year of the value investor, finally?
6: Yeah, so I mean, of course, you you never know. I, this is 2001, and value stocks are going to go up, and everything else goes down, or, or who knows? I don't know that. Uh, we are um, very fortunate. I'm, Centerstone Fund sits on a gold line of great businesses that are trading at a huge discount. It's like the opposite of the world that I just described as Zoom Media, for instance, where you're looking at potential catalysts emerging from private equity getting involved and taking advantage of some of these uh, steep discounts that are associated with very you know strongly you know high growth in our world anyway, that's five to seven, five to seven percent. Uh, but more importantly, companies that have actual cash flows that are profitable, that have good businesses that have been just passed over and stock prices have been depressed. So we, we can, I can see uh, an environment, maybe not tomorrow you know, or next month or what have you, but sometime starting this year, where um, as disappointment starts to filter through um, mm-hmm. some of those bubble names, m- money starts to gravitate to where it finds a home most naturally in cash flow generative enterprises. And that's what we own.
0: Hey, I want to ask you, uh, a listener sending us a a message saying, I was wondering, you know, is the long-term underperformance of international stocks a permanent situation, or will it turn around? If so, what might be the catalyst? You know, you often look globally when it comes to NAME. Any thoughts on that?
6: Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, for the last several years, we've been talking about how the international markets have underperformed. There's a lot of latency. They're they're undervalued compared to the U.S. markets. And a very, very fair question that was very difficult to answer is, well, what's going to change that? What are the catalysts? And we didn't really have much of an answer to that until recently. Uh, The three things that have been driving uh, the headwinds for international investing, the dollar, Mm -hmm. uh, the industrial the cyclicals, uh, the down cycle in industrial um, economies around the world that started in 2018, and the very tight uh, fiscal uh, policies that were in Europe that prevented that economy from recovering post-2011's Euro crisis – because of ironically enough the covid crisis all of those headwinds have turned into tailwinds interest rates are zero here just like they are everywhere else it means the pressure is off the foreign currencies uh the cyclical economies have begun to repair themselves if you look around uh, the world uh and and just as importantly, or maybe more importantly the fiscal fiscal st- uh, what was a depression a depressant on european economies which is the fiscal Austerity measures in place since 2011 have all turned around. Now they're very fiscally aggressive. So you've got kind of the macro uh, intersecting with the micro. The micro being undervalued names uh, that have lagged for a long time, uh, all kind of coinciding to uh, finally emerge as a catalyst for international, hopefully for value as well. But I think your question is about international mm-hmm. and. So as far as I'm concerned, I mean, this is the first time in a long, long, long time where I can say, okay, we've got everything in our favor. There's nothing that says that things can't turn around or it, we can't just, you know, hit, be hit by another crisis or whatever. But as far as, you know, lining up the odds in your favor, um, you know, they're as well lined up as they possibly can be for, for people like us.
1: I was really interested earlier what you said about Zoom, um, and I want to make sure that I understand. You were were you you were not. Were you speaking of Zoom video video, the the, like, the Zoom yeah. that we've been using?
6: Yeah, Zoom. Sorry, yeah. I said media. Zoom video. Um,
1: are there other names that are, are are poised to see the the bubble the bub- the air come out of the bubble as you put it?
6: Uh, it's interesting Tim. You know, I've been reading all these uh, IPO documents that have been coming out. These new companies, Snowflake and Palantir mm-hmm. and and uh, Urban uh, what's it called. Uh, the Door, DoorDash and Airbnb, <clears throat> and it's a, there's a common thread in all of them. They all talk about the risk of growth being disappointing in one way or another. And I find that very fascinating because these stocks are being sort of the uh, the built-in assumption is that you're going to have these 25 50% growth rates or even more into perpetuity like you've had, but the big difference is you know, these, these companies are not competing with legacy businesses anymore. They're competing with other businesses that have the same competitive advantages they do. Right. <laughs> yeah. and so, you know, there's a massive – capitalism is going to do its job this year. It's going to introduce competition. And, yes, the industry can grow, but not all of these companies can grow at those rates. And uh, Survival of the fittest, strongest,
0: be, right, or whatever it is.
6: Yeah, I mean, you could – you know, you, there's this uh, – and what kind of makes this uh, – a little bit more um, challenging for these right. companies is they're all gonna go try to make market share at no profit
0: yeah Which is like, what? Investors have been okay with it thus far. That's exactly. You know, create a Amazon or whatever. Pick your company and and we're okay with it. Abe, um, so good to hear your voice. Happy New Year. Abe Deshpande, founder and chief investment officer at Centerstone Investors based in New York City, which is where we found him on the phone. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg. Global News.